Today's dead idea, temple prostitutes, fact or fiction. This is part seven of our series on cuneiform. That's right, we're nearing our finale. And today we are looking at the famous slash infamous institution of sacred prostitution in ancient Mesopotamia and asking if it really was as they say. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is still waiting by the temple side for some guy to throw a taco into her lap. <laughs> I think sometimes all she really wants is a good taco. Also, maybe she doesn't know how food trucks work. <laughs> anyway, today we're talking about sacred prostitution in ancient Mesopotamia. And no co-host today, just me, partly because, given Nick and Anna a break, partly because I don't want them responsible for the train wreck that this episode might turn into, considering the controversiality that <laughs> we might invoke here today. But I think that we have taken on controversial topics before. We've talked about gender before, and I think we've we've proven ourselves to be able to do this in a mature way, if that adjective can ever be applied to this particular show. <laughs> We'll, we can take it seriously sometimes, right? So ancient Mesopotamian prostitution. The most famous passage attesting to this is from Herodotus, ancient Greek, right? Not a Mesopotamian at all. Which, taken at face value, this passage shows every young unmarried woman of Babylon going through some kind of initiation ritual, waiting by the temple side for some man to toss a coin into her lap to purchase her sexual services. And according to Herodotus, every young woman had to do this at least once in her life. And Herodotus laments not only that the young girls have to perform this initiation at all in the first place, but also that the less attractive girls would have to wait and wait to get chosen. Kind of like being the last to be picked in gym class or something. You know, only except in this case, gym goes on and on perpetually until you get chosen. And eventually these women that he's talking about would find themselves unhappily just living out the plot of never been kissed and just they just end up sticking around the temple just becoming priestesses or something so goes the tale from herodotus anyway now this idea of sacred prostitution was one of the first dead ideas that i actually wanted to do when we started this show about a year ago and it's not just about the salaciousness of it i mean Yes, I admit that it's it's titillating to think about, but it's also because it's a whole different way of looking at sexuality, and it's so different from ours, and seeing sexuality as sacred and the sexual act as something like a sacrament is just, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating. I mean, we in the West are currently experiencing one of the most sexually free societies of all time in terms of acceptability of sex outside of marriage, not to mention, you know, availability of sexual imagery and instant gratification via the internet. And yet we still see it in our culture as dirty in some sense. Well, what if there was a culture that didn't see it that way, that saw it instead as a kind of sacrament? That's what made me interested in this. That's what made me want to talk about this. But when I got into the research, I discovered that actually 
there's considerable controversy around the whole idea of Mesopotamian sacred prostitution, whether it even existed. Some recent scholars are starting to question whether it was even a thing at all in ancient Mesopotamia. And it's possible that this particular dead idea never was, and our topic today may just be the idea that it ever existed at all. That might be our dead idea today. And that, to me, is just as interesting, if not more. So we're not going to come to any final conclusions today about whether or not this thing really existed, but we are going to hear both sides, and we're going to see what we come up with. So what we'll do today is first, I'm going to describe the institution of sacred prostitution as it is believed to have been. Then I'll give some arguments against it ever having existed. And then finally, some counter arguments by scholars who maintain that, yes, in fact, it did exist. And in all of this, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to, you know, to sort out what's what. And most scholars on this subject are really writing to each other rather than to you and me. And, and also, there's a lot written on this subject that has a lot of hidden agendas behind it. And some of it is written by people who don't necessarily have the firmest or most up-to-date grasp of the material. But... You might never know it being just a lay reader, and so even the most basic details of what this or that word means, for example, is really up for challenge. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's going to be fun. Let's just put it that way. So timeline-wise, it's the same old story as we've had through this whole series. It's hard to suss out the difference between Sumerian and later Akkadian culture. Mostly today we will be talking about the Akkadian periods, but a few Sumerian terms do pop up, indicating a much older tradition. Okay, let's dive into this topic. So first we need to be clear about what we're talking about when we say sacred prostitution, because there are many different roles from ancient Mesopotamia that could or could not count, depending on how you slice up the pie, and scholars have not always been particularly specific when they invoke the word, so it does get a little muddy. The most general idea of a prostitute is someone who supports themselves by sex, right? Income via sex. Couldn't really be plainer than that. Within a highly developed money-based economy, that definition seems pretty clear-cut. I mean, this price for that sexual act, and wham, bam, thank you, man, pleasure doing business with you, thank you very much. There's a quid pro quo, and, and that's that. But in a culture without money, or in the process of developing money, it gets a little murkier. I mean, for example, if you perform sexual services on an ongoing basis as part of a role for which you receive a perpetual income, is that prostitution too? And what makes your prostitution sacred? Do you have to be employed by the temple, or are, you, or are your own private convictions about it? Like, if you have religious convictions about it, is that enough to make it sacred prostitution? So questions just get a little murkier when you go back to a culture like ancient Mesopotamia. And these are the sort of questions that make ancient Mesopotamian roles a little less easy to classify as clearly prostitution or not, or clearly sacred or not. So let's talk about some of those different roles now. So one of them is called the Kadishtu. It starts with a Q. And this is a kind of priestess who performs ritual sex, whether real or symbolic. And according to one of the sources I read, Bulo and Bulo, who wrote Women in Prostitution, A Social History. What Bullen Bullo say is that Kadishtu is a priestess who has ritual sex 
as part of her ceremonial duties, and this is seen as reenacting the annual rebirth of vegetation through intercourse with the king or with a high priest of some kind. And this reaffirms the relationship of the people to the land, too, through a ritual consummation between king and goddess via this priestess. And it also establishes legitimacy for the king as a ruler by expressing a kind of divine favor. So there's all of this wrapped up together in the Karishto. And this ritual sex may have been symbolic, but it may also have been physical, depending on your interpretation and the era of history that you're talking about and also which scholar you read. The most well-known example is the Eros Gamos ritual of the city of Uruk, where as part of their New Year festival called Akitu, the king has sex with a priestess who was called the Entu, that'd be the Sumerian term, or the Nindingir, which is the Akkadian term. In Bolo and Bolo, Glas the Kadishtu as also being called a Kadiltu or a Kalmashitu. And that last one is kind of interesting because it shows just how murky our understanding of some of these roles are. The Kalmashitu, as I understand it, is married to the god Marduk, and being the bride of a deity makes the, the Kalmashitu sort of like the Naditu or business nun that we've already discussed in the previous episode. And the Kalmashitu is either a kind of Naditu or it might be something entirely different. We just don't really know. Bolo and Bolo give details on such a priestess of Marduk, and here I suspect that they are talking about the Kalmashitu, just like this. And here they're also relying on Herodotus as a source, which can be a little suspect, but nevertheless, here we go. They say, Within the temple at Babylon, there was a special room set aside for the god Marduk, or Baal, as he was sometimes called, to have sexual intercourse. This room was located in the topmost tower and had a large couch that was occupied at night by a woman specially chosen to serve the sexual needs of the god. A Greek historian Herodotus, who wrote in the 5th century BC, reported that the people told him the god came every night to have intercourse with the woman, but that he himself did not believe it. Once a woman shared her bed with a god or his human personification, she was debarred from ever sharing her bed with a mere mortal man. Similar practices are reported to have existed elsewhere and continued to exist until the Emperor Constantine, the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire, abolished the practice in the 4th century AD. So that's the Kalmashtu, who may or may not be a Naditu, or a Kadishtu, or both. It's hard to tell. In any case, the Kadishtu is a priestess who has ritual sex, either symbolic or physical, as part of her ritual role for which she receives support from the temple. I mean, it's not sex for sale directly, it's not this price for that act, and it's not available to all and sundry, but only available to the king or a certain priest, and only at certain times, probably during like this New Year festival, for example. But it is sex as part and parcel of the role for which she gains her income. And Bulo and Bulo call these prostitutes. Personally, I probably wouldn't really make the call on this one that it's prostitution. I, it seems more likely free and consensual participation in religious expression to me. And I would probably keep the word prostitution for something much more specific than this. But make a, I guess make up your own mind. Which brings us to our second role, actually. What we would definitely call a prostitute, but perhaps not a sacred prostitute. 
And this was a woman, or a man, by the way, who offered sexual services in exchange for a price, full stop. There are different terms and categories, but the main one on which scholarship seems to focus is the harimtu, spelled with a K-H at the beginning, and I'm just guessing that it should be pronounced like a chutzpah or something. The Sumerian term is karkid, and these seem to be the lowest in status of the potential sacred prostitute roles. And there are proverbs and sayings from ancient Mesopotamia saying, never trust a harimtu because she'll captivate your heart, but take your shit and leave you used up and that kind of thing. And there are even hints of standard pricing for a harimtu. In a hymn, the goddess Nanaya is actually made to say, when I am standing by the wall, it is one lamb. When I am bowing down, it is one and a half shekels. Don't go digging any other canal. I will be your canal. Don't go plowing any other field. I will be your field. Farmer, don't go looking for any other moist patch. I will be your moist patch. So this sounds pretty clearly like prostitution to me. I mean, prices are given for specific sexual acts. Or maybe she says, when I'm standing by the wall, it is one lamb. When I'm bowing down, it is one and a half shekels. Right? So that's quid pro quo. That's this price for that act. Now, the question here is, is this sacred prostitution? I mean, the goddess portrays herself as one of these harimtu. And in other texts, the goddess Inanna or Ishtar likewise refers to herself as a harimtu, which certainly suggests a religious connection. And of course, this could also be a case of, you know, the ancient equivalent of, you know, a TV commercial, like uh, with a, a kind of celebrity endorsement, just like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis eating Truvia yogurt or something, right? I mean, in this case, here, look at this goddess. Even the goddess practices prostitution. Come to our establishment and enjoy all of your, all the fruits of what the goddess has given us. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe they're just using the religious aspect in a secular way is what I'm trying to say. So it's hard to say still, is it sacred or not? And to make matters more complicated, this is a society, of course, where religion permeates every corner of life, like most societies ever, other than very recent Western societies. And individual prostitutes likely would have prayed to a particular deity, such as Inanna or Ishtar, the patron goddess of prostitutes. Inanna was the Sumerian, Ishtar the Babylonian or Akkadian. And so these prostitutes may very well have seen themselves as doing the deity's work or even embodying the goddess. But does that make it sacred? I mean, does is, is, is are your personal religious convictions enough? Does that make it sacred? Right? So the third and final role, which is a candidate for sacred prostitution from ancient Mesopotamia, is what I really want to talk about today, and that is what I'm just going to call the temple prostitute. And I wasn't able to find a specific Akkadian or Sumerian term for this, but this is a person just like the Harimtu just mentioned, and maybe it would even be the same term, but the crucial difference is the income earned by the sex goes to the temple. The person is employed by or even owned as a slave by the temple, which receives the income and in turn supports the prostitute. So, like, it's kind of like you do the sex act, you collect the money, the money goes to the temple, and in return you just kind of get a salary or something like that, right? Or rations. So now with this category of ancient prostitute, we 
have a clear quid pro quo of sex acts for sale, and we also have a clear religious connection via the temple. But even here, I mean, it is a little unclear how sacred this should be seen as. I mean, is going to a temple prostitute a holy sacrament? I mean, I've read about uh, a modern lady at the Burning Man Festival who sees herself as carrying on the tradition of Ishtar, who offers sex for free will donation, and it's meant to be an opportunity to commune with the goddess. And, you know, was this like that? I mean, Mesopotamian temples had their fingers in all kinds of industries. I mean, they would often rent out land to farmers, but you wouldn't necessarily see farming of that land as sacred farming, right? So, I don't know. Is this to be seen as sacred prostitution or not? I, it's, it's, I don't know. That, that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make here. Is it's, it's very, very unclear. So these are the sort of sorts of questions that confront you in studying this kind of thing. Now, assuming that at least one of these categories was sacramental or sacrosanct in some way, what was it like for a society to make sacrosanct the prostitute. I mean, surely they would have held them in the highest regard, right? Well, actually not necessarily. I mean, the Kadishtu priestess seems to have enjoyed high status, but the Harimtu and the temple slave prostitute enjoyed quite low status, it seems. And Bolo and Bolo cite an Assyrian law requiring prostitutes, and I don't know which kind, to go in public with uncovered hair. And this is contrasting sharply with respectable women who wear both veil and head covering, and slaves who go unveiled but wear a head covering. So Bolo and Bolo take this to imply a status even below slaves, although I'm not sure that that's really such an easy assumption to make if it, if it really implies a hierarchy, but it could be seen that way. So status, status is weird <laughs> for prostitutes, and it's always a funny thing for prostitutes in cultures. In most cultures throughout world history, being a prostitute makes you an outcast and implies a radical loss of status. But at the same time, it also grants you freedom. And it grants you self-determination because you have your own economics to rely on. You're, you're, you're self-sufficient. And it gives you the potential, for the particularly talented at least, to gain renown and an, in fact, towering status if you become, say, a high-class courtesan, like Aspasia in the court of Pericles of Athens, or, or Agnes Sorrel in the court of King Charles VII of France, for example. I mean, you can be low status in one way, but extremely high status in another. So I'm not sure that a simple linear hierarchy is really the most appropriate way to see this, but one thing we can say, if, if this is accurate, is that it's very similar to other cultures, and so the elevation of the prostitute to sacredness in Mesopotamia can't be taken to necessarily indicate or imply a radically different social picture than in other cultures. We can't conclude that just from this. And this also, by the way, fits with the pattern of female status generally seen across world cultures, where the female image may be elevated to divine status, you know, with a goddess kind of image, or a very, very holy feminine image of some kind, you know, like, like the Virgin Mary, for example. And you would think that giving God a female face, in a way, 
would equate to an improved situation for women on Earth. And as a pagan myself, I'm very much complicit in the desire to see that kind of thing to be true. But in fact, as far as I've been able to tell, research seems to show that this kind of trickle-down feminism, if you want to call it that, really just doesn't seem to work out very well. It just doesn't seem to happen that way. For example, one study I read, which is unfortunately too long ago to remember the reference of where I found it. I looked hard to try to find it. Couldn't. But it, it found that Latin American cultures in which the Virgin Mary is highly venerated do not seem to show any significant improvement in the status of women relative to other Latin American cultures in which she's not as highly venerated. So take that for what you will. My only point here is that contrary to what you might think and what I always wanted to think, making something sacred does not necessarily make it better. If prostitution was sacred in Mesopotamia, it doesn't necessarily mean that prostitutes were bred or treated, or seen with halos and shafts of golden light, you know, shining down from heaven onto them. It just doesn't necessarily indicate that. But in any case, this institution supposedly lasted a hell of a long time. It lasted millennia, in fact, and according to Bolo and Bolo, at least, it was only finally outlawed by Emperor Constantine in the 4th century CE. So that's about as much as I was able to dredge up about the Mesopotamian institution of sacred prostitution, if it ever existed at all. But did it? Now let's go to some of the arguments of scholars who say that there never was such a thing. Okay, so the main line of argumentation against sacred prostitution ever having existed in ancient Mesopotamia seems to turn on a linguistic basis. Specifically, that there is no known word for prostitute in Akkadian or Sumerian. Wait, what? <laughs> I mean, we just saw several words that mean that, right? Or that could be taken to mean that. You know, I just mentioned in relation to the different roles, the Kadishtu, the Harimtu, and so on. But see, here's the thing. The interpretation of ancient languages is kind of a big game of Jenga. <laughs> I mean, you make one translation based on a certain hypothesis, and then you build off of that. Other translations kind of key off of what you already have attempted, and so if you get one thing wrong early on in the process, and then take away that, then the whole Jenga tower can come toppling down. And the argument here is that that's what happens. In this case, the argument is that the Kadishtu was translated as a kind of prostitute based on its similarity to the ancient Hebrew Kadesha from the Hebrew Bible. And if Kadesha is read as having a different meaning other than prostitute, you know, the alternative meaning that I have heard is sort of a woman who is sexually independent outside of accepted norms of marriage, but not necessarily sex for sale, then if that's the case, if there's you know, a different meaning other than prostitute for Kadesha, then Kadishtu is called into question as well, which in turn calls into question all the other related terms in words, so that, you know, you see the process, the whole Jenga tower just kind of collapses, or at least begins to teeter precariously. Now, the most radical position that I've read uh, from this line of argumentation, who claims that these terms in Hebrew, Akkadian, and Sumerian like I said, refer not to prostitution, but the socially unsanctioned sexual activities of free unmarried women. Basically, independent sexually assertive girls going their own way. They may have engaged in actual prostitution here and there, opportunistically, 
but they were not, as a category, prostitutes, just women self-determining their own sexual lives. And if that's the case, and if that's the case, well then, how did the whole myth of sacred prostitution get rolling then? If it, if it never existed, how did where did this idea come from? Well, that's the story of the development of a myth. Myth question mark? So according to this argument, the development of the idea of Mesopotamian sacred prostitution is a long story of a kind of, it's kind of like a Turkish bath scene in the Western imagination, right? Like you, those odalisque kind of paintings where you see this salacious scene of all these naked women all frolicking about in a bath, and it's all so titillating. It's this kind of mysterious Eastern other with its exotic and tantalizing customs. That, that's, that's the kind of historical narrative that we're talking about here, according to this line of argumentation. And for this, I'm going to follow Stephanie Boudin's article, Sacred Prostitution in the First Person, which is a chapter in Prostitutes and Courtesans in the Ancient World. So we begin with the 5th century BCE Greek historian Herodotus, whose history, quote-unquote, is quite often acknowledged as being notorious for including a whole lot that probably shouldn't really be considered history. And remember also that cuneiform could not be read up until the 19th century, so Western historians reading Herodotus would be relying basically only on Herodotus and the guys that also read Herodotus. So they didn't have anything else to compare it to to verify him. So just keep that part in mind. Now the specific passage from the histories of Herodotus, book one, is where he describes the Babylonians. Now the most shameful of the customs of the Babylonians is as follows. Every woman of the country must sit down in the precincts of Aphrodite once in her life and have commerce with a man who is a stranger. And many women who do not deign to mingle with the rest, because they are made arrogant by wealth, drive to the temple with pairs of horses and covered carriages, and so take their place, and a large number of attendants follow after them. But the greater number do thus. In the sacred enclosure of Aphrodite sit great numbers of women with a wreath of cord about their heads. Some come and others go, and there are passages and straight lines going between the women in every direction, through which the strangers pass by and make their choice. Here, when a woman takes her seat, she does not depart again to her house until one of the strangers has thrown a silver coin into her lap and has had commerce with her outside the temple. And after throwing it, he must say these words only, I demand thee in the name of the goddess Mylita. Now Mylita is the name given by the Assyrians to Aphrodite. Aphrodite being, of course, the Greek goddess of love. And the silver coin may be of any value, whatever it is she will not refuse it, for that is not lawful for her, seeing that this coin is made sacred by the act, and she follows the man who has first thrown and does not reject any, and after that she departs to her house, having acquitted herself of her duty to the goddess, nor will you be able thenceforth to give any gift so great as to win her. So then as many as have attained to beauty and stature are speedily released, but those of them who are unshapely remain there much time, not being able to fulfill the law. For some of them remain even as much as three or four years, and in some parts of Cyprus, too, there is a custom similar to this. So goes Herodotus. Now in this passage you see both the quid pro quo of the coin in exchange for the sacred act, and you also see the sacred nature with the value of the coin being irrelevant. 
but the act being made sacrosanct by the coin, symbolically. So that sounds like going to church, right? That definitely sounds like both prostitution and sacred, right? So this seems to be what first got the ball rolling for this idea in the West. But here's the thing, though. Remember that Greece at this time, at the time of Herodotus, right, was at odds with Persia. And Mesopotamia was part of Persia at the time, would have been seen as Persia. And Herodotus, therefore, would have had a vested interest in othering the East like this. And the other thing is that this passage is, in fact, part of five customs of Babylon that Herodotus specifically denigrates, and most scholars don't necessarily put any stock in the other four. So here's the other four. The first one is bride auctions, and there would be an auction for the most beautiful bride and also a Dutch auction for the ugliest bride, <laughs> in which the price would actually be reduced until a buyer is found. And Herodotus says that this is the wisest of their customs. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second custom that Herodotus mentions is medical diagnosis by laying the sick out in the public square and seeking the advice of passersby who've had similar ailments. <laughs> so this is so this is kind of like the Mesopotamian WebMD, it sounds like. <laughs> and the next custom is burying the dead in honey. And finally, the fourth custom is purifying oneself after sex via incense and washing. And then the fifth one is, of course, this whole temple prostitution thing. And the reason why this is significant is scholars discount the other four, but they have traditionally put stock in the fifth one, that this temple prostitution thing existed. So, hmm, right? Something about this fifth custom captured the imaginations of Westerners and apparently just had a staying power that the others didn't. Was it the titillation of it? Was it that Turkish bath feature? I don't know. So somewhere in the timeline here, maybe 2nd century BCE or so, you also get a quote from the book of Baruch, which is in some versions of the Bible. Um, they would be the Septuagint, the Vulgate, Ethiopian Orthodox, and Theodosian Bibles. You get this quote from the book of Baruch, which has a vague reference to Babylonian women sitting with cords about them, going to lie with a man, and then boasting about being more attractive than the other women there. So the cords part fits with Herodotus, as does going to lie with a man. So that's interesting. Then the next Greek writer that picks up the theme is Strabo in the first century CE. And he recaps pretty much what Herodotus said, first of all, then speaks also of Herodules in Eryx, which is another word for Sicily, and he speaks of a sanctuary on a lofty hill that was supposedly once replete with female Herodules, but now is depopulated. Herodule is, um, uh, how do you describe that, like a sacred sex slave, kind of? And Strabo also seems to describe sacred prostitution in the Greek city of Corinth, but then Budin says it's based on a misunderstanding of Pindar and the use of this word palake and blah blah blah. Again, all kind of like vague meanings with a crazy kind of historical Jenga game. And finally, Strabo tells of the Armenians following sacred customs of the Persians, especially of the goddess Anaitis, dedicating maiden daughters to the temple, who having been prostitutes a long time in the goddess's presence, 
are able to marry and no one disdains to marry them. So that's Strabo. Then next in the developing historical narrative of this idea is the 2nd century CE Roman author Lucian. In Didea Syria, speaking of Byblos, which is in modern Lebanon, he says, the women of Byblos shave their heads as do the Egyptians when Apis dies. And Apis is a sacred bull. The women who refuse to shave pay this penalty. For a single day, they stand offering their beauty for sale. The market, however, is open to foreigners only, and the payment becomes an offering to Aphrodite. So again, the East plus some kind of prostitution-like, sacred-like thing going on. Next in our historical narrative come the Christian church fathers. Here, Boudin writes, the early church fathers, only too happy to have reasons to condemn their pagan predecessors, seized the opportunity to use this so-called evidence to condemn the heathens who sold their daughters' bodies in front of idols before being, quote, civilized, unquote, and, quote, saved, unquote, through Christian conversion. So did the element of accusation emerge. And finally, Boudin concludes, only when Greek, Roman, Near Eastern, and Biblical scholarship are considered together do we really discover that sacred prostitution was not a historical reality, but a myth that came to take on a life of its own. Hmm. Well, then what did Constantine actually outlaw in the 4th century BCE? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it was just another attempt to other the East by creating a law against something that didn't really exist, but that did exist in the imaginations of the people at the time. And kind of like how in the 1980s in America, we had that satanic scare, where there really wasn't very much satanic activity at all going on, but everybody thought there was, and police went through programs to detect satanists among our youth, and like a peace symbol was in actual police manuals as a symbol of Satanism. Maybe it was that kind of thing. Maybe Constantine was doing that. I don't know. In any case, the idea that it existed, that ancient Mesopotamian prostitution, sacred prostitution, existed, kept on until finally in the 19th and 20th centuries, cuneiform tablets started being translated finally. But by then, the idea was so entrenched that it just colored the views of the scholars who did the translating, and they pretty much just read hints of sacred prostitution into practically every Mesopotamian female role that they encountered, so that it looked like even the Akkadian and Sumerian texts themselves gave clear indication of sacred prostitution. Now, if, like this, you are steeped like a fine tea in classical Greek literature, as these translators would have been, this would seem a perfectly natural conclusion, because the Greek terms used to refer to the phenomena very clearly do mean a prostitute, but they themselves are attempting to translate Hebrew and cuneiform words that are less clear, so you get a little bit of a telephone game distorting the message. In fact, Beatrice Brooks writes, It was noticeable that a number of terms in Akkadian texts were arbitrarily translated eunuch, harlot, whore, herodule, or prostitute, until it seemed an improbable percent of the population must have been either secular or religious prostitutes of some sort. And Boudin summarizes this point, having been told by the classical scholars 
Once one piece of evidence, quote-unquote, was discovered, it was used to strengthen other pieces of so-called evidence. And Boudin asks, what Herodotus, Strabo, and the early church fathers were actually writing about then? And here she offers Robert Oden's idea that they were concerned to show other cultures as barbaric. Quote, he suggests that sacred prostitution was in fact not a historical reality, but an accusation, the sort that one society makes against another so as to show the barbarity and inferiority of the other group. Thus, it falls into the same category as accusations of bestiality and baby eating. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's the Greeks saying that the Persians have WMDs and we got to do something about it, right? So that's the argument that sacred prostitution never existed in Mesopotamia at all. Our dead idea here for this episode might in fact just be the idea that it ever existed in the first place. That could be what the dead idea is, although it's not completely dead yet. If these scholars are right, maybe it will be in another 20 years. However, right now at least, scholars do not by any means agree on this conclusion. And I wasn't able to tell how much credence is generally given to this or that theory, whether it's you know in the majority thinking that it existed, or the majority thinks that it doesn't, or that it's a 50-50 split, or that one or the other is just a quack theory and not taken seriously by anybody, hardly. I don't know. Probably not a quack theory, but probably not an overwhelming majority either way either. It's hard to tell. But suffice to say that there are scholars today that do think that it definitely did happen, and it was a thing. So now let's look at some arguments for sacred prostitution actually existing in ancient Mesopotamia. Morris Silver, for example, defends against the thesis that there never was any such thing as sacred prostitution in Mesopotamia by combining numerous lines of evidence. And none of them are knockdown arguments, but they do seem fairly strong to me, at least. So here are the highlights. First, the society of Mesopotamia had all the building blocks necessary to support something like this, to support prostitution. A market economy, demand for it was enough to dictate relatively standard prices, and so on, all that kind of thing. The economic infrastructure was there. Second, there are religious texts that seem to be advertising sexual services, like the Ishtar Will Not Tire Him that we read in our Fifty Shades of Clay episode, for example. Or like the Nanaya Hymn that we read earlier in this episode, which even seemed to explicitly set a price on certain sexual acts or positions. Third, there are sexually explicit terracotta plaques, with it, which have common scenes or tropes like the woman drinking beer from a straw while getting taken from behind, which again we mentioned in our Fifty Shades of Clay episode. And many of these plaques have holes as if for mounting, so Silver speculates that these may have actually been hung outside of brothels or taverns to advertise services offered therein. Fourth, while it is true that in all the cuneiform receipts that we have to date, we find little or no recorded transactions involving sexual services, it may be that this is not the sort of transaction that you write down. I mean, it, it's not like a sale of land where you need evidence for years and years to come that yes, in fact, you did pay for this land and it's yours now. It's more of a spot transaction, you know? You, you might not even want to have evidence that you went to go see a prostitute just lying around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a totally different kind of thing. So archaeologists wouldn't necessarily turn up receipts indicating in, with clear evidence that 
prostitution existed. There's no need to get out the clay and record for all posterity that on the second day of the month of Tammu, so-and-so received a motorboating from... <laughs> I mean, it's just not the sort of thing that would be recorded. <laughs> so, so finally, finally, there are just too many instances in the cuneiform texts, according to Silver, where the reading of words like harimtu as a sexually independent woman would just seem like too much of a stretch. And while it would be possible, the reading of prostitute just seems so much more sensible. And so, for all of these reasons, Morris Silver concludes, it would be most challenging to devise an explanation of how dates, casual prostitution, or the status of single woman slash not the wife of a man might generate institutionalized cultic payments and, indeed, even a harimutu office. Temple prostitution, at least, faces no such obstacle. So in other words, he's saying, yeah, it could be how you guys are saying, but, I mean, come on. It just really seems like sacred prostitution. That's his argument, right? At least prostitution, all those reasons that we just went through, indicate there was probably something called prostitution. Whether it was sacred, again, a little more hazy, but there you go. Silver goes into considerably more detail, but I'm going to lift that to the interested listener to read. I mean, you, as always, you can find all of our references dutifully recorded on our website on the post for this episode. Find that at www.deadideas.net. So those are the arguments for and against sacred prostitution ever existing in ancient Mesopotamia. Like I said at the beginning, we're not coming to a concrete conclusion in this debate here. You can make up your own mind. But to finish out this episode, I do just want to add an addendum that although the sacred temple prostitute thing may not have ever existed in ancient Mesopotamia, it did elsewhere, and in fact still does today in some places, notably certain rural areas of India. The Devadasi tradition, which has its own whole controversial history and delicate discussion, and unfortunately we don't have the time to fully explore that here, but apparently the Devadasi tradition still goes on in certain areas. Despite it being made officially illegal in 1988, there seem to be roughly 3,000 dedicated each year, so a fair number. And it's just very hard to extinguish a tradition that's been going on for ages and ages. So that's a thing. Like, that still it still exists today. And there was a recent Vice documentary on this called Prostitutes of God by Sarah Harris, who investigated temple prostitutes devoted to the goddess Yalama. And one interesting thing to note about this documentary is, first of all, this living tradition doesn't seem to me like the vision of wow, you know, a society who makes sex sacred, I mean, what would that be like, you know, that I had starting off trying to look into this topic, um, which very well might have been my own Turkish bath scene in my imagination. Rather, the Devadasi tradition in India today seems, I mean, it, it might have been more religious and sacred in earlier phases of its history, which didn't start out as prostitution at all, but might have actually deteriorated into that due to declining social status, especially when British colonialism hit. But again, I don't want to go into the whole complicated history of it. Anyway, today at least, it does not seem very sacred or religious in its tone. Not from this documentary, at least. It seems considerably more like just down-to-earth, business is business, that 
you know, just happens to be connected to a temple and to the goddess Yalama, so far as I could tell from this documentary. And maybe that's what it was like in ancient Mesopotamia. I don't know. On the other hand, though, about this documentary, an another interesting thing to note is that most of the prostitutes interviewed chose their profession on their own, of their own volition, and were actually rather proud of it. I mean, I think she interviewed like something like five or six, and out of them, only one seems regretful or ashamed. Only one out of five or six. In fact, this stood out despite the overarching narrative of the documentary maker, who seemed like she was trying to show these women as being oppressed or something. But if you actually just ignore that part and listen to their own words, most of them didn't seem to feel that way. They could, in fact, be making a significant income, and one of them was actually the first in her village to buy a radio, and she was quite proud of that fact. So again, that goes back to that whole thing about prostitutes having an interesting relationship with social status, where, yeah, they're cast out, yeah, they're, they're not respectable women according to, you know, the culture that they're in, but at the same time, they can be very much respectable people with high status and independent wealth, but it's just status is a funny thing especially when it comes to this outsider called the prostitute. So that's a kind of interesting side comment or addendum that just casts this whole ancient Mesopotamian thing into a very interesting light. I mean, if we want a picture of what it could have been like, there it is. I mean, there it is in the modern world. It's, it's uh, quite disenchanting, I think. I mean, it really pops my bubble of wow, a society that venerates sex, what would that be like? But, but nevertheless, you know, there it is. So anyway, that's, that's all I have to say about this today. That, I guess that's, that's something that I found really fascinating and that I wanted to share, and I, I hope that I've done this justice in terms of, you know, the seriousness and maturity of the topics that we're talking about here, you know? We joke on this show, but we also talk about serious stuff, and I think we can do that, so... That's it for this episode, folks. And in fact, it's almost it for this series, in fact. Our cuneiform series is almost over. But we're not done yet. Because, of course, in our grand tradition that was started with the Geish series and carried on in the Russian serfdom series, we are finishing up with a grand finale episode. Absolutely. <laughs> Why would we not? This is the kind of show where we pull out all the stops and we do an episode where it's kind of like the end of a fireworks display where you save half your load for the very end and then blow it all in an orgy of podcasting frenzy, that kind of thing. <laughs> and we're going to have Andre Solo back on the show to help us really drive it home. And as for the content, we always do a mashup of a historical story with a pop culture movie. And guess what we have in store this time? Well, one of the major themes of this series has been that this is the most ancient of ancient cultures. And yet, due to the preservation of cuneiform tablets, it feels almost modern. And so, for our content this time, we are keeping with that theme. Prepare your cyberpunk goggles, everybody. Pull out your holographic tablets and laser styluses, because we are going to do the Epic of Gilgamesh as a mashup with Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> and no, I don't mean the recent Scarlett Johansson live-action version, Although I saw it, and it's not actually as terrible as I expected it to be. But what I do mean is the 1995 anime, the classic anime, directed by Mamoru Oshii, 
which has always been my absolute favorite Japanese anime, even ahead of Ghibli movies like Princess Mononoke. And if you haven't seen Ghost in the Shell, go watch it right now because it is great. I mean, it's like, and like Gilgamesh, it has action, but it is more than just action. It has so much complexity dwelling on mortality and the nature of the self, in the non-Scarlet Johansson version at least, asks what it means to be an individual in a world where the internet is increasingly blurring the lines between man and machine, and where the main character has an almost entirely cybernetic body, all except of her human ghost inside the machine and some brain cells. And yet she struggles to come to terms with that shred of humanity which is nevertheless inescapable. Meanwhile, the Epic of Gilgamesh, of course, likewise asks what it means to be a human for a main character who is two-thirds divine who struggles to come to terms with the ultimate mark of humanity, mortality, death. So if you're not an anime geek and don't know Ghost in the Shell, go check it out. Either way, we'll give enough context next time in our finale episode that you can understand and enjoy it, regardless of whether you've seen Ghost in the Shell. But in any case, I highly recommend going and, and watching it. It's good. Okay, enough. It's going to be awesome, full stop. You don't want to miss it. You got it, right there. And also, of course, if you like what we're doing here, remember, if you think that we are delivering on our promises and producing great content that entertains you week after week, I mean, why not support the show? You can get great perks like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. You can be a possibly non-existent harimtu, charging a lamb for a romp against the wall of Babylon, for example. <laughs> or you can be a Scarlett Johansson slash Gilgamesh tortured by existential anguish. <laughs> I don't know. It might take a little creativity to figure out what that would be like, but I'll do it, right? It's entirely up to you, whatever you want to be drawn as. I'll do it. I'll make you look awesome. Just support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, everybody, I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.